This is Anubhava, a podcast for art, science and philosophy, exploring our relationship to everyday experiences between the mind, body and environment. Anubhava is a Sanskrit word translated to experience that is vital to examine the everydayness of things in themselves. This word has the potential to bridge huge gaps in continental and eastern phenomenology in our conscious understanding of knowledge emerging from embodied cognition. I am Shashank Satish, the principal investigator of the XPC or Experiential Cognition Lab founded in Bengaluru in 2017 practicing at the limits, horizons and possibilities of accounting for plural everyday experiences in art science and consciousness research. What is the relationship between architecture, experience and consciousness? What is the purpose of art and architecture and how do we inhibit and perceive them in everyday life? Join me in this fourth episode of the Anubhava podcast. the first of a two part series with architect prem chandavarkar as he eloquently answers questions about consciousness and experience while sharing stories and examples that matter to the level of spirit in architecture prem chandavarkar is the managing partner of cnt architects an award winning and widely published architectural practice based in bengaluru india He received his training from the School of Planning and Architecture, New Delhi in 1978 and went on to do a research-based master's degree in architecture from the University of Oregon, USA in 1982, where he wrote a thesis on the linguistic analogy in architectural theory. He is the former executive director of Shrishti Manipal Institute of Art, Design and Technology in Bengaluru. and is an academic advisor and guest faculty at Indian and International Colleges of Architecture. In 2016, he was the curator of the Centenary National Convention of the Indian Institute of Architects on the theme Imagining the Indian City. In the same year, he was the 2016 Walton Critic at the Catholic University of America in Washington DC. Besides his design practice at CNT, he writes, lectures and blogs on architecture urbanism philosophy politics education environment art and cultural studies plasma in his essay body mind and imagination the mental essence of architecture in the book the mind in architecture says buildings mediate between the world and our consciousness through internalizing the world and externalizing the mind structuring and articulating lived existential spaces and situations of life architecture constitutes our most important system of externalized order hierarchy and memory with that i would like to introduce today's speaker and welcome prem chanda worker to the xpc lab podcast good morning prem welcome to the show good morning thank you for having me It is lovely to have you on the show and I look forward to having a conversation with you regarding the relationship between architecture experience and philosophy and to that end I would like to um 
kind of introduced this term called architecture consciousness uh, in a very loose manner where we can understand this relationship, this ancient relationship rather between consciousness and our built environment. Um, and what do you think is this relationship between architecture and consciousness historically and philosophically? Well, I think it was uh, captured very well in uh, Morris Berman's book, Re-Enchanting the World, that uh, one of the fallouts of the modern of modernism is that we have disenchanted the world. We just see it as this neutral sort of scientific place that, mm -hmm. you know, works by the laws of physics. And that's not how humans have historically seen the world. They've seen the world as something alive and magical and... Uh, 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 and, and full of spirit. So he actually says we need a different kind of consciousness which he calls a participating consciousness. And our traditional notion of consciousness has been the ego-based consciousness which is one that steps away from the world and, and constructs its own uh, structure and modes of thought and, mm -hmm. and understanding. So in a participating consciousness you see the whole world is alive. You don't, you don't see it as passive. Mm. And uh, that requires a, a more poetic vision. Uh, so you, you take a, a, a poet like Pablo Neruda and his uh, collection of odes, where he writes uh, poems uh, sort, of, uh, sort of capturing the spirit of very ordinary things from, from very dynamic things like the sea, mm -hmm. but even to very mundane things like tables and tomatoes. And uh, he shows that they, they, there is a magic, there is a spirit, there is a history. Uh, even, I mean, you, you can you can put a tomato in front of you and and actually try and construct its history. It's not just magically appeared in front of you. It's not an inert thing. There are lives that have gone into cultivating it. It has it has built relationships with the soil, with the wind, with the rain. Um, so. So we need to be more embedded in those histories. Hmm. And uh, to me as an architect, it's uh, architecture is a way of constructing the, the potential for a participating consciousness. Looking at built spaces and us subjectively occupying them, uh, do you think there's a phenomenological connect between these two things? Uh, because I feel this participation in in uh, this context of consciousness is when we put our bodies into it, our minds into it, wholly the mind-body-environment equation. Can you talk a bit about that? I wouldn't uh, put my sort of first foundation in philosophy for that. I I would just, I would put it in experience and and how one can build a critical relationship with experience. Um, l let me tell you a story which I think has been one of my most profound teaching experiences. Yes. A bunch of us, this was many years ago, we'd gone to a college in Hassan, which uh, unfortunately no longer exists, but it was quite a good school at that time. And an architect friend of mine, Namnath Kanade, and I were uh, together and we were talking to first-year architecture students. And they were doing their first architectural design program, uh, project. And we were talking to this young girl who was terrified. 
She said, I can't do this. You're asking too much of me. And we asked her why. And she said, uh, the, the project was a kindergarten. And she said, there is a path from the uh, front gate to the, um, uh, to the front door. I don't even know how wide that path should be. How uh, wide, how can I design a whole building? So somehow neither Navnath or I started responding to that question directly. We said, uh, imagine walking down that path. How much space would you take? Oh, this is a kindergarten. You be, might be leading a child by the hand. How much space would that take? Or you might meet someone uh, coming from the other direction. Or that person also might be leading a child by the hand. How much space would you need? And through this conversation, she arrived at the conclusion that the path needed to be between two and a half to three meters wide. And when she said that, Navnath said to her, see, you knew the answer. Why did you ask us? <laughs> and her eyes lit up. And I think it lit up not because uh, she had uh, discovered the width of a path, but because she had learned how to interrogate her own experience mm. to arrive at an answer. So that interrogation is where I place the foundation, which is actually a movement, a continuous movement between experience and philosophy, between mm. theory and practice. Mm. Mm. And uh, the mistake many of us make is we think theory is foundational to practice, mm. Mm. that we first construct a theory and then we apply it in practice. But actually, the two cover the same territory, but from different directions. Uh, practice moves from the general to the specific. Hmm. I, th I start with something general, like a design brief. Hmm. Then I maybe look at two or three possible concepts. I zero in on one. I start developing it as a schematic design. And then I start looking at its constructability. And then I have to start getting into the construction. And that's a process that is moving more and more to the level of detail. Mm. And if I do nothing but that, my center of gravity as a person shifts to the level of detail. Mm. Theory does the opposite. It looks at a specific observation and says, what does this mean? What principles can be generalized out of it? Mm. So that's a process that's moving towards abstraction. And if I do nothing but that, my center of gravity moves towards the level of abstraction. I become the ivory tower academic. So it's actually how the two are always critiquing each other. And I think our relationship with the world is conversational. It's not philosophical. Absolutely. And that, that is really the heart, I think, of what Berman meant by a participating consciousness. We talk to the world, the world talks back to us. Right. So, um, so I, I see that as really the foundation, how one constructs one, one's own practice to... Uh, because the problem is we've, we've segregated theory and practice into separate worlds. Mm -hmm. We believe that theory belongs to the world of academia and practice belongs to the world of uh, firms. And, and we don't construct spaces where the two coexist and are conversing critically with each other. There's an interesting essay by a landscape architect called David Heyman called A Mound in the Wood. Mm -hmm. And he, drawing heavily on the writing of Adolf Loos, mm -hmm. um, asked the question that why do buildings designed by professionally trained architects stand out in such contrast to the landscape? Mm. And um, he says that doesn't happen with vernacular architecture. 
It doesn't even happen with, for example, railway tracks, which you think are more violent intrusions into the landscape. They, mm -hmm. they, they don't stand out. So, And the difference is that railway tracks have to respect contour mm. to a far higher degree than architecture needs to. Uh, and it's because the modern architect has been trained in uh, the idea of expressing, of saying something. You know, a modern architecture said it would revolutionize the world and, and put forward and, you know, if you look at the writings of Corbusier and uh, Mies and many of those, they're, they're proposing a certain kind of architecture which would revolutionize the world. So, so architecture is supposed to symbolize that revolution and that creates an architecture which is what Heyman says, mm -hmm. which is meant to be interpreted before it is to be experienced. Mm. Whereas vernacular architecture is different and architecture historically has been different. It's meant to be experienced before it's interpreted. Mm. And that interpretation comes from the experience of it, from the actions, from the possibilities of inhabitation, from the memories of continued inhabitation. Mm. Mm. So architects tend to forget uh, two very important things. One is if the importance of architecture was the message it conveyed and that message had been constructed by the architect. How does that message survive the banality of routine everyday experience, repeated experience? Because you experience, typically experience a building, you know, day after day, year after year. Once you have read the message, wouldn't it be boring? <laughs> and the second thing is, we are conditioned perhaps by training to believe that our voice is heard through our design. Mm. Perhaps that's because in college you're always next to it, you know, defending it in a studio creator, defending it in a jury. So, and then once you enter the world of professional practice, that voice is sustained by architectural journalism, where it talks about the work, always seeking to reconstruct the voice of the architect. But actually when you hand a building over to inhabitation, you disappear from the scene. Mm. Your voice is forever silent. And there are very few architects who come to terms with that moment of silence mm. that is imposed on them. And I think that's that's the fundamental understanding one needs to, the threshold of understanding one needs to cross. Yes. Um, if I can slightly shift to this idea of vernacular and look at the Indian context, how do you think um, experience even before philosophizing has played out in our uh, subcontinent? There's, there's a, a wonderful uh, section in Christopher Alexander's uh, book, his first book, Notes on the Synthesis of Form. Mm -hmm. And although he, he deviated from that book in his later thinking and writing, but this bit is about the Indian village house. Mm -hmm. And why does it have such a marvelous fit between culture and climate and topography? Mm. And he says it's because it's allowed to evolve over time. Mm. Uh, perhaps it started as a simple one-room hut. And someone lived in it for some time. Then they realized they need this much more space. So they realized some problem. They made one edition. Perhaps the next generation made the next edition with, with the memory of 
the previous generation embedded within it. So they were basically trying to just handle one or two variables at each time. Now we try and design a whole house in one shot or a whole large building complex in one shot. So we're trying to handle many variables at one time. And we are bound to get it wrong. And the only way to mitigate that challenge is to embed one's consciousness within this wider history to develop this participating consciousness. Mm -hmm. So your consciousness is embedded within the culture of inhabitation, mm -hmm. within the culture of, en uh, within the history of environment, uh, within the life in materials. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's what should be a part of, uh, a fundamental part of one's architectural training. Unfortunately, it is not. That's, that is sad in a way, but also mm. true. This idea of uh, memory and generational evolution of architecture also brings to me the idea of culture and how culture and architecture have both been responding to each other and shaping each other even uh, through the ages. Uh, the fact that we're sitting at the Bangalore International Center where the culture of the city has kind of shaped this building and the building today is shaping the culture of the city. How different is it of these larger, larger than life ideas we talk about in a very real space that we can sit in today and have a conversation? So culture is something you live. And uh, I think if you're designing a building for culture, you, the notion of your aesthetic of aesthetics has to change. Mm -hmm. I I wrote an essay um, many years. I think it was in the mid '90s, but it's it's something that has shaped my thinking, and I still hold to it. And it was about what I call the aesthetics of absorption. Mm -hmm. That we are trained uh, as architects in an aesthetic of expression. Mm -hmm. That is what can we say through architecture. And uh, the journey that had taken me there was, um, I think, the, the three, everything doesn't spring from these three readings, but these three readings can be sort of defined as uh, a milestone. The first was an essay by a historian, Francis Yates, called Architecture and the Art of Memory. And in that, she talks about the ancient Roman orators who had to make long, complex speeches without the aid of notes because paper was not available. It was a rare commodity. Mm. So they used the architecture of the space where they were going to give their speech as a mnemonic device. Mm. They would go in there in advance and plan their speech and say, okay, the entrance door stands for my first point, the column next to it for my second point, the niche next to it for my third point. And it is said that the most skilled of them could even go through a logical back argument backwards just by reversing the sequence with which their eye traversed the room. But Yeats uh, uses this to make an important point that we don't receive meanings from architecture, we also actively write meanings into architecture. Mm, wow. and, it is that. Mm. and I think the lesson of Yeats' essay uh, came when uh, there's a, a second uh, reading which refers to this same... Uh, 
instance of the Roman orators, and it's an essay by Primo Levi, and it's on his own house. Mm-hmm. And he draws on these, you know, he uh, cites the example of the Roman orators, and then goes on to say that uh, this technique would never work for me in my own home. Mm. Because every corner is already occupied with authentic memories, which would interfere with the fictitious memories this technique demands. Right. You know, and he starts his essay saying, "You know, I live in my house as I live in my skin, and I I can think of many more beautiful and you know better skins, but I can't imagine inhabiting them." I'm not I'm not citing the exact words, but right. uh, the, so then I realized that uh, architecture is is a place whose meaning accrues over time. Mm. As I said, experience before uh, interpretation, right? And you have these memories that then accrue. In fact, if you, if you want to remember your childhood, probably the easiest thing to do is to look at the house in which you grew up. Mm. Because it will capture even more than the photographs of that time, because the photographs just capture what is visible. The house will also show you what is in, you know, intangible. Mm. So, uh, so this is an aesthetic of absorption, where the architecture absorbs meaning over time. And the third uh, reading was a sentence I stumbled across, which uh, sort of resolved, helped me resolve in my mind uh, the question of what the purpose of art is, mm-hmm. all art. And uh, we again to get looking at definitions that would take me away from this conventional notion that art is the expression of the artist. Mm. And uh, this was a phrase by the British writer Janet Winterson, and uh, she said, "I'm puzzled by the question, what is your book about? Mm-hmm. Because if I could put it in other words, I couldn't I wouldn't have taken such care choosing the words I did use." Mm. And somehow that uh, that statement sort of struck home to me, and uh, I came to the conclusion that the purpose of art is to offer exactitude. Mm-hmm. That our world is messy and changing and entropic, and mm-hmm. but art offers a resistance to that decay because it offers us sites of exactitude that we can look at and take a measure of who we are. Hmm. A, a subjective exactitude, if I may. No, it's not subjective, and I can uh, get on to explaining why. Yes. Uh, but uh, this this exactitude is important because otherwise you wouldn't have these reference points which you could inhabit. Hmm. And, and it's really what our traditional crafts did, right? To, to them, yeah, there was no se- separation of objects of utility and objects of contemplation. If they uh, made a coconut scraper, it was in the shape of an animal. Mm. You know, they they animated it. They they saw an enchanted world with, you know, full of spirit and animation, and 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 it explained to them the notion of the cosmos. They didn't delegate understanding of the cosmos to a specialist like a scientist. Absolutely. They, uh, if there's a column pattern, mm. it's really a replication of the universe, and that's how they understood it. Mm. So I think this notion of what what we have to do as architects, and I think 
all arts do this in some way or the other, is offer these sites of exactitude mm. that are rich, that are layered, that are ambiguous, that offer multiple interpretation, multiple possibilities for inhabitation. Mm. And construct a space that is conducive to building memory to that people can use to take a measure of who they are. Mm. It, the purpose of architecture should not be to convey what I wish to say about mm. the world. It should be to offer to whoever I design for this opportunity. And the reason why I say it is not subjective, mm. and this is, this is actually uh, a reason why education in general, science has put such a poor uh, value on, uh, such little value on first person consciousness. Mm. Because, because of this claim of subjectivity. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a mistake. They're actually creating a greater subjectivity. And uh, in the Nature of Order series, Christopher Alexander describes an experiment uh, that he conducts with his team, where they take two demographically similar groups. They show them a set of cards. Each card has a pair of images. And they show them the same cards, each group, but they ask a different question. To the first group, they say, which one do you like better? And that's a question that opens up sub subjectivity and there is vast variation in the responses. And the second one, I don't think, I don't remember how they exactly phrase the question, but effectively they're asking which one echoes with your innermost being, makes mm -hmm. you feel more whole or complete. And there, there's a 90% correlation to one of the images in the bear. So the, the wooden handled axe over the plastic handled screwdriver, mm -hmm. the hand painted cup over the gaudy mass produced coffee mug, the street with trees over the street without trees. Mm -hmm. And you know, there, there's sort of many examples of these. So actually, when you phrase the question in experiential terms, especially inner experience, you actually find a much greater objectivity. Mm. And we tend to think that because this inner experience, mm. or what Michael Polanyi called tacit knowledge, mm -hmm. because we cannot document it, because it is more than what we have the capacity to say, it is treated as subjective. Mm. But it is not only... Uh, highly objective, it's also transcendental. Mm -hmm. So the example of a musician, see a pianist, a famous pianist, his knowledge of the piano is completely tacit, it's completely first-person consciousness. Mm -hmm. He has practiced to the point where he does not feel the separation between piano and the body. Mm -hmm. Yet that capacity is so objective, so tangible, it has commercial value. Mm. People are willing to pay large sums of money to attend a concert or to buy recordings. So what do you have to do here? One is the willing suspension of disbelief, to use a popular phrase, mindfulness and devote space, devote time and space uh, to be in the same space mm. as, as this knowledge.
and basically what the reason why that chord is struck uh, between you and the musician is you're not here you're neither you nor the musician are actually hearing the musician you're hearing the larger voice of music mm. which is greater than either the musician or the mm. or the audience and both are surrendering to that greater voice mm. so i think there is actually great objectivity and one has to one's notion of time inhabitation aesthetics has to start looking at these kind of uh, aspects of how one relates to the world this is a very refreshing take on how uh, we can look at exactitude and objectivity when talking about things larger than us and the spaces we inhabit and also how you beautifully tied up art into the picture This podcast is an attempt to build transdisciplinary bridges exploring nuances and roles of experience in the first, second and third person perspectives as evident in the Experiential Cognition Lab manifesto. To find out more, subscribe to the XPC Lab podcast Anubhava. You can now listen to new episodes here at XPC Lab online. on Anchor, Spotify and SoundCloud. You can find links to all of this and more in the podcast description. This show is produced by Holy Cow Studio. Visit holycowstudio.in/home/xpc-lab for more information. We are on Instagram at xpc.laboratory. Thanks for listening. I am Shashank Satish for the Experiential Cognition Lab. Join us next time in episode 5 with Prem Chandavarkar to further explore the role of experience and consciousness in architecture through the Anubhava podcast. Namaste.